0: All you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here
1: to dwell. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most
2: dangerous conditions...
1: I really
3: think that the
1: labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say no contract, you say no cool. no contract, no, no contract no.
3: If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free.
4: You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
5: Tennessee Valley, this is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville. Alabama. Today, Jonah Furman from Labor Notes talks us through what's going on on the railroads. Republicans have their eyes set on attacking the only law enforcement that holds bosses accountable, the NLRB and the Department of Labor. We talked to a nurse from Tuscaloosa about issues with the VA and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week and we might play it on the next program. So just a reminder that phone number is always open. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere. You can find anything online. All of our past episodes are on uh, our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. You can watch clips of the show and all past full live streams on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We post some clips from the show on TikTok and occasionally I'll get on there and rant. You can also find us on Twitter, all of those places at The Valley Labor Report. So search for us there. Just a reminder, folks, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners, so it really does help. And you know, if we get, we've got like, you know, for as being as small a show as we are, we have a really solid base of listener support. We've got like 70 people, 70 people every month giving a dollar, two, three, four, couple people giving us 10, 20 dollars a month. That really adds up. If we were to be able to double that, get to 120, 140 people giving us 1, 2, 3, 4 dollars a month, then that really helps us it, it helps us with our sustainability because we're not having to go to this one union for 300 bucks a month or 200 bucks a month and making sure that they're re-upping their sponsorship. So it helps us with our sustainability because we know month to month, you know, the the listener support is gonna be very, very stable, right? You, know, you might lose one person here, might gain a person there, but listener support's gonna be very stable. Whereas uh, local union sponsorships are going to be pretty up and down, and they're going to affect it. So, listener support helps us be more sustainable, and it also helps us maintain, you know, a certain amount of independence, right? Because we are are unionists, we are pro-union, we are pro-organized labor, but we are also, you know, we're a specific kind of unionists. We're, you know, we're the more militant more democratic type and so you know there's occasionally occasionally going to be some things that we say that people aren't going to like maybe that are also in unions and so if we have listener support that helps us be more independent and we're not having to worry about what this person says or what this union particular thinks about this one segment that we want to do right so you know that uh that it Support us if you think that what we are doing is valuable um, and you have the means. And you can do that on our website, tvlr.fm slash donate. That is tvlr.fm slash donate. You'll be donating through us to us through Unionly, which is a union-focused payment processing service. That is, their employees are union-represented by the Teamsters. Very, uh, very proud to have them as our payment processing service. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash/The Valley Labor Report, um, and if you like our hats or our stickers, you can go to our store TVLR.fm/store. Uh, but if you are a member of a union um, and your local is not sponsoring the show, uh, then and you like what we're doing and you like what we stand for, you think that we are uh, providing a valuable service for union members and non-union members across the South, then consider getting your local to sponsor the show. Um, we absolutely couldn't do it without our local union sponsorship, so you can reach out to me for more details on that. So uh, we'll jump into last week in Southern Labor, which is a segment that we do every week, mostly, where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird?, which compiles all this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on with workers outside of the South, then you should subscribe to his newsletter, whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's jump into new organizing for the week of of September 3rd through September 10th. 700 poultry plant workers at Pico Foods in West Point, Mississippi, are organizing with UFCW Local 1529. It will be the second largest vote in the state in at least the past 15 years, uh, and as f- which is as far as easily accessible online NLRB records go back, only behind the ill-fated UAW drive at Nissan in 2017. 115 cement truck drivers for Titan Concrete in Fort Lauderdale, Florida are unionizing with Teamsters Local 769. Six meter tech uh, six meter techs for People's Gas in Pikeville, Kentucky are joining the utility workers union. And the staff of Act Blue are unionizing with code CWA, and they are requesting voluntary recognition. In union wins and losses across the South. 14 clerical workers at the huge Kroger warehouse in Memphis voted 3 to 6 not to join Teamsters Local 667, who represent the rest of the warehouse workers there. 16 Mechanics for Waste Management of Kentucky in Louisville dropped the UAW Local 3058 in a 4-7 to vote. As we mentioned uh, last week, announced that they had gotten something like 6,000 union cards signed among minor leaguers, and the bosses decided that they had better voluntarily recognize them, which they did. Baristas at 17 Hein Brothers Coffee locations in and around Louisville won their election to join 32BJSEIU. In political fights, Elizabeth Warren in the Senate and Brad Sherman in the House have introduced a bill to eliminate Section 14B of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is to say ban state-level right-to-work laws which is based. The House Education and Labor Committee will hold a hearing on corporate union busting featuring leaders of Starbucks Workers United and the fantastic Kate Bronfenbrenner, one of the best analysts of the NLR, of NLRB elections and new organizing data. We'll have some analysis of that, uh, of that hearing, which happened last week, later on in the show. The NLRB has proposed a joint employer rule, which would make it so that parent companies and especially those who subcontract or franchise out operations would be liable for the employment behavior of their underlings. And finally, in internal union politics, the AFL-CIO has gained an affiliate in the Major League Baseball Players Association, which... uh, were not already affiliated, and although there is nothing exactly to report yet, a new reform effort has launched on social media, but there are real people behind it, in the UFCW ahead of their April 2023 convention. They're calling for one member, one vote, and other union democracy reforms, which, if successful, could be a major shakeup in one of the country's largest unions. And with that, we are going to head to a break. If you want to jump on the phone and chat with us, the break is a good time to call in. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. You can also text us. And on the other side, we're going to be talking to Jonah Furman about what is going on with the railroads. We'll be right back.
4: Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial, working-class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you, too, can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW
1: 558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice.
0: Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org.
5: Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org.
0: The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms.
2: Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136 out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org
5: Come build a better future with us today and join IUPACT. only union talk radio show this is the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison my co-host is adam keller if you've got anything to add shoot us a text message the phone number is 844-899-8857 we appreciate everybody in the youtube chat although we've got 15 people watching and only eight likes what's up with that
2: uh. <laughs> uh Jared it's because I missed that transition just mm, now. Yeah. You know, if right. I, I come back from commercial break, Johnny on the spot. Right. They would have all liked it. Exactly, exactly.
5: Jared, Austin, Marissa, D. El Cendero, Lefty Pufferfish, thank you for joining us in the YouTube chat. Joe and Mel in the Facebook chat. We appreciate you uh uh coming in to the chat, watching our streams. Thank you very much. Um I liked Don't Look at Me, says Lefty Pufferfish. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: We've got a couple plugs before we get to um, before we get to Jonah talking to us about the rails. Um, we wanted just to remind people that uh, the UMWA's Strike Pantry Fund can be donated to at paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. Also, don't forget, folks, to sign up for the Labor Notes Alabama Troublemaker School. It will be... At the University of Montevallo on Saturday, October fifteenth, we're going to have some great panels, great discussions, great speeches. Register at labornotes.org, labornotes.org, uh, and then you go to the events section, Alabama Troublemaker School. It's like thirty bucks, and if you if that is going to break the bank for you, you can send them an email, and they will. Uh, we can work on getting you a scholarship. Uh, It's going to be lots of good, lots of good stuff. Uh, The city of Huntsville has a runoff election on Tuesday, September 20th. So that's like five days away. There's a dist- It's a District 3 school board race between Andrea Alvarez and Angela McClure, and there's a District 2 city council race between David Little and Bill Yell. You can check out our segment last week on Angela McClure, right-wing weirdo, and our interview last month with Andrea Alvarez, both on our YouTube channel. Alabama Arise has their annual meeting on September 24th. For the first time, they will meet both in person in Montgomery and online via Zoom. Members will select the legislative priorities for the upcoming year, so your participation is encouraged. Um, And with that, let's go to Jonah Furman. Jonah Furman is staff writer and organizer at Labor Notes, and he joins us now to give us the lowdown about what happened last week with the U.S. railroads and what to look for in the coming months. Jonah, thank you for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it.
6: Yeah, thanks for the invite. Good
5: to be here. Absolutely absolutely. So um, Ben really quick, I want to make sure that uh, when we play these two clips from Shapiro and Jackson that Jonah's going to be able to hear them and while we make sure that uh, Ben has has that while we make sure that Ben has that set up, Jonah, before we talk about what happened last week, uh, you know what the situation was last week with the negotiations and the almost strike, can you help us understand the situation that railroad workers have been in? For the past several years
6: yeah sure so you know uh, i think going back the big picture thing is a term called precision scheduled railroad uh which is basically the rail industry's version of lean production so if you look at one of the one of the good measures of this is in the past six years something like 25% of rail workers on different lines have been cut. So, you know, do more with less. This is this is the name of the game. And in the rails, it's much more severe because low functioning rails, while a big deal for the economy, These are monopolies, right? So you can't just set up another rail line. There are six carriers involved in national negotiations, but for the most part, they all cover different geographies and they have their own customers. And those are pretty locked in. You can't really just switch to trucks for most of this stuff or to boats for most of this stuff. You basically, you know, businesses have... The supply chain has to rely on freight rail. So freight rail decided a few years ago, it has to do with, you know, trying to squeeze more money out of it. Warren Buffett taking over one of the big companies, for example, they decided we're just going to cut, 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 and we're going to cut staff. Even if it's dangerous, we're going to cut staff, even if service goes down and they really don't have much to lose in cutting this because there's no competition, no one's going to mm-hmm. step in. And unless, you know, this is where we're hitting a choke point, unless somebody speaks up like the rail workers, or if businesses, I mean, there's businesses that are bankrupted by this, this um worse functioning rail system. And it's really been a drop off in the past five to 10 years. So that's why we're seeing it come to a head. And this moment in particular has to do with how railroad negotiations work. So they're under these five-year contracts, except under rail labor law, which is separate from everything else, you basically are used to these extended agreements that they expire, quote unquote, but they remain in place for years. So we're actually three years behind when the last contract was up uh, for the railroad workers. So
5: the the biggest issue that you mentioned, or one of the biggest issues that you mentioned, is that the that uh, they're cutting staff on the rail lines, and and they're cutting staff to even. What, one person operating one of these huge trains is that right
6: yeah i mean this is this has been a big part of the fight um for years is the two-man cruise which is you have the unions and the workers are just fighting to maintain that on a huge locomotive you know could be like a two-mile long train you have more than one person working i mean at bare minimum it's just what if somebody you know passes out or gets sick or anything happens to the one driver you have Uh, just huge i mean it's hard to express how dangerous that is um but from the company's perspective they're like that's a write-off if there's an accident that's less likely and we get to cut half the half the engineers so you know for them that's that's just fat
5: and what about uh you know and so you you spoke to the dangers of that really well i think what about the pay issues there that it how long has it been since railroad workers got a raise
6: Well, there is, you know, there's built in raises into these contracts. People keep saying this is the most, you know, the the biggest raise we've seen in 40 years on the rails. It's 24% over five years. So, you know, it's less than 5% a year. It's not. uh, And they keep talking about, oh, it's a 14% raise immediately. Well, yeah, it's partly because they've been out of raises for the past three years while the thing's been expired. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. Some some rail workers pay is a big issue. For a good chunk of the workers who are upset, they're sort of like, you're throwing money at the problem. But the problem is that I never have a day off, never see my mm-hmm. family. I would trade, you know, I've had people tell me they would trade X amount of dollars just to get time, you know, and whatever that looks like, sick days, more vacation, uh, less punitive uh, scheduling, you know, the part of the issue is that if you take a day off, you're punished for it for six months, you can get fired. There's people who have been hospitalized for COVID and face severe discipline to the point of losing their job. So, you know, that kind of, you can't really throw 20 grand at right. that. And something that's really interesting about pay on the rails right now is you'll see these rail companies right now are offering for new employees like ten dollars to $20,000 starting bonuses. And that might sound nice, but what that means is they cannot get people in the door and they cannot keep them. They're willing to throw however much money they have just to trick you into taking this job. And there's a lot of people who qualify and get in and realize, oh, I can't live. Like I can't see my family. I can't do anything right. else outside the job.
5: Can you um, make make a little bit more explicit what those policies are? Because, you know, the, like, like you mentioned, the For most of these people that we are hearing from, uh, from you know the only people that are actually talking to the workers that are affected by this, which is going to be you, which is going to be Mel Buer and Max Alvarez at the Real News and the Working People Podcast, um, you know the pay is not even the the primary thing. It's that they want time off. They want they want to be able to uh, not be punished for getting sick or going having to go to the hospital. Can you um can you make a little bit more explicit? What are those what are those policies uh how much time off, how much sick time do they or don't they get uh working on the railroads?
6: Yeah, so I would just say it's 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 complicated. There's 120,000 workers here and all these different unions, different crafts. So different workers have different issues, but the The operating crafts, mainly the people who ride on the trains and things like that, and who are on long, long term schedules, big travel schedules, things like that, they get no sick days and they get something like 30 days in the year off. But you need to think of that like regular workers Monday through Friday get two days for a weekend every week, right? So right there, that's 104 days they get 30. They don't have 104. There's no weekend. (laughs) And when you say they don't get it, it doesn't mean that they're working literally every day. But you have to, if you miss a call, you're on call. And if you miss Mm -hmm. a call, you are very close to getting fired. Now, there was on one of the rail lines, there was this new policy called high vis, which basically is high visibility, meaning you got to be there all the time that just implemented harsher penalties for missing a call or not being available when you're supposed to be on call to the point of if you miss it, you could lose your job, you could have it for 20 years and lose your job if you miss a couple calls or you get too sick or you whatever you violate this this points policy. So essentially your life as a railroader, especially increasingly as there's less staff available, is you're sitting next to the phone. You can't make a plan that we're going to go out to dinner. You can't make a plan that we're going to go take a trip Mm -hmm. for a night. I can't visit someone out of state. I might not be able to go to a wedding because you're by the phone and you need to be able to get to the yard in, you know, X amount of time. And if you don't, You're racking up points on your discipline. And if you hit X points, you are out of the job, or you are severe, you know, you you have to take six months with no time off at all. So that's that's the big picture of it. And on top of that, there's no sick time at all. So that's only days that you have are can use of your 30. And most a lot of them have to be scheduled in, in advance. There's different rules for different groups, but you know, you can't it can't be like I'm sick and I can't come in, and especially during a pandemic. I mean. What does that mean? It means if you get COVID or think you might have it, there's no option to say, I can't come in. The option is you go in and get everyone sick or you risk your entire job, which is obviously ridiculous in any time. But right. when there's mass amount of sickness that we're supposedly trying to suppress, you know, um, so so that's the basic situation is, is you're you're just on call all the time. Um, and when and- you're
5: on call, are you getting paid while you're not working, but you're on call?
6: No. I mean, I don't know the exact details for people, but it's not like you're on the clock getting, working the job. You could wait for a job for X amount of time. There's also all these details of like, you know, every time you start a a trip, you get, you get paid for it. So they make the trips longer and longer. So you have fewer starts, right? Like they manipulate the, you'll see, for example, one thing you've seen over the past few years that trains, literally the trains are getting longer. They're getting three or four miles long each train because they want to hitch as much cargo to each train because they're trying to maximize the scheduling, maximize, you know. So you have, uh, there's a lot of complaints about blocked rail crossings. Like you have a rail crossing in a town that a train is just sitting on, either because it's so long that it takes forever to get past it, but also because it's just parked because they don't have enough maintenance guys to come fix it so we can operate again. So you have like roads in small towns that are just blocked by freight cars because they're not hiring enough people to move the cars. So, you know, we are at a level in the industry of just like people have described it as near collapse. Um right. not just for the workers quality of life, but like The supply chain thing is not just factories aren't putting out enough and we can't get supplies from China or whatever it is. It's also, we can't move freight in this country because the companies make more money by not moving freight efficiently than by moving it efficiently.
5: And, you know, speaking some more to this, to this human toll, and then I, I want to talk about, I want to contrast that with how these companies are doing, but you retweeted a couple people this morning, or this one person twice this morning, um... And this is on Twitter. It's anonymous, you know, so all those caveats. But, I, you know, this this tracks with our understanding of the situation. Uh, this t- at two-person crews on Twitter, you retweeted them, Jonah, saying, uh, quote, I missed a call once while I was on call. So I, I missed a call to go into work while I was on call. I accidentally left my phone on silent. It cost me 15 of my 30 career points. I would have to work 14 days on call in a row four times to get those points back. That's 56 days on call to make up for one missed call. Railroads think this is okay. And then the other one that he said is, quote, To witness the birth of my child, I took a day off this is the same person this is a railroad worker it cost me 4 of my 30 career points i had to work 14 days on call to get those points back railroads think this is fine and reasonable and you know this is the, these are the kinds of things that that people are coming out with you know like i the the railroad is trying to make me not witness the birth of my child like that's ins- that's that's crazy
6: yeah yeah i mean and and again it's like it's immoral, but it's also a disaster it's 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 a disaster waiting to happen for the economy, for whatever system you think that the freight rail is supposed to support. you can't run a system like that forever you know uh, mm-hmm. when this generation of people who are there's some people who are like look I'm I'm pop committed things have gotten so much worse in the past five years but I can't get out because this is my whole you know I can't possibly switch 20 years into my career 30 years into my career but you're not going to get a new generation of railroaders with these conditions. And if you don't get it, and if the companies are incentivized not to get a new generation of railroaders because they want to keep costs down and half of what they do is just stock buybacks anyway, and they're a monopoly, so they're not going to lose the business. Mm. What's the end game here? I mean, you have to have an industry that can run, but no one involved is incentivized to run it except when we get within 36 hours of a national rail strike. Right.
5: Yeah, well so let's talk about the companies then. How uh, you know, are are they similarly sacrificing um in order to make sure that consumers get the goods that they need? Or, are they also, you know, seeing huge hits to their profits and the and the executives taking huge pay cuts and 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 working with, without being able to witness the birth of their child? Are we seeing like a, a sort of parity here?
6: None. I mean You know none, but also just 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 so you understand, when union negotiations get bad in the '80s, in the '90s, you would see like big steel companies have huge fights, and part of it was there was actually profits crisis. You know, it's like the industry is dying. So what are we going to do? We're basically fighting over a shrinking pie. The railroad business is hugely profitable. Like I said, it's monopolistic in the sense that there are multiple companies, but they cover different territory and they run a business that cannot have competition because no one can go set up their own rail line. So profits and, and and in the pandemic, I mean, we just know that there's been huge pressure on the supply chain, which means more business for them and higher rates because there's more desperation for the business, right? So you pit businesses together, the freight rates go up. So no they've made a ton of money and they've spent it, a lot of it, they've spent on stock buybacks, which makes them more money. They, you know, something, the average annual raise for rail executives is something like 14% a year every year. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so by any metric, even if you thought that in a time of crisis, people got to take, you know, tighten the belt or whatever, this is the opposite. We are at a time of massive profit and, extra profit for the companies as they reduce costs uh, like crazy and as their business goes up like crazy at the same time.
5: Interesting. Okay. So this, I think this sets the stage for what happened last week. And, um, you know, so we've got workers really, really sacrificing to get consumers their goods and the people at the top just raking it in, Um, which, which leads us to the workers coming close to a strike coming clo- well well actually we were coming closer to a uh, to a lockout than a strike and 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 I want you to talk about that but but you know the narrative was about a strike and and that there was a strike averted and and, and all of this and um so in response to the news this is what I, I want to play a couple of clips one from a national conservative figure and one from a local one Um, And I want to get your reaction, Jonah, to how what happened last week is being how how it's being portrayed in the right wing press. So, Adam, let's play this clip from Ben Shapiro.
2: All righty, And fingers crossed everything works correctly here. Prior to an election, unions can hold up the
1: Democrats at gunpoint and the Democrats will just give away the store. That's exactly what just happened with the railroads.
5: All right. So. Shapiro reckons that the workers just got the whole store with this deal. So that's, that's a pretty interesting take. Um, and, and you know, Jonah, I, I you've been talking to railroad workers about this deal that was struck, the tentative agreement that the workers have to vote on before we can actually say, you know, a strike was really averted. Um, so, so we'll get your take on that in just a second. But this is our own local shock jock. Dale Jackson uh, is on WVNN in Huntsville. Let's see... Uh, how he? Let's see what he says about um, what happened last week. It is that things will be more expensive if there is a rail strike? That that's the moral of the story. Although it's not hard to understand, that is what people know, are Jacob, talking we about. So that may not go
2: that's through. Not we had what we some need. problems now, with it this morning. Uh, Joe so Biden so we may have to skip. Well, uh, this union is dancing, considering yeah. striking. Okay.
5: Well, so a- and causing, what he does uh, many, is many, many, he takes about many ten times problems. as long to say even less. But but he he basically says um the strike would affect you he doesn't lay any of the groundwork like we just did about what the executives are getting and what the workers are putting up with he doesn't do any of this uh the workers got a deal and Democrats love unions and uh probably this isn't going to affect you anymore that that's basically uh that's basically what Jackson's segment said Jonah how well do those two segments represent what went on last week
6: I mean, you know, it's it's obviously there that's going to be their line, um, but it it doesn't it just it just doesn't reflect reality. I mean, what we're talking about is a deal that was set in August that was recommended, right? And then workers some workers rejected it, some workers had to think about it, and then there were slight improvements made this week that that supposedly got us over the line, right? So, the deal itself, I mean, there were not radical changes in there. So there was nothing done on scheduling in in Mm -hmm. either of these deals. The new deal from Thursday that everyone's like, oh, save the day, the only thing it changes about attendance is there's some amount of unpaid sick time. Meaning, another way to say that is, if you get sick and go to the doctor, you will not get fired. You won't get paid but you at least it won't add to the points. And even that, no one has seen language on what that actually means. If you read the releases from the unions, it basically says for certain procedures, it will be removed from the punitive attendance policy. So there's that. And then the only other thing that people have said is one of the highlights of the deal, again, no one's seen it, is uh, a cap on health insurance premiums, which is just to say, they said if your premium goes over four hundred dollars a month, that's the limit. You'll pay four hundred dollars a month for your healthcare minimum. So if that's the store, I like. I don't. I don't know what they would prefer rail workers take. The okay. only thing that is like, you know, that you could even say positively about the deal is that it has twenty four percent raises over four years, but I mean over five years, but. Uh, if you look at, you know, whatever, look at inflation or look at any other union contract, five percent raise a year is just not this is not a monumental deal. I don't think that's anyone a pay would say cut. that. Five yeah.
5: percent raise a year right now is a pay cut. And, yes. and and that is the that is the largest, that's the biggest thing that they're pointing to. And and Ben Shapiro spent spent a few minutes in his segment on on that, like, oh, wouldn't you love to get a quarter raise a quarter percent, you know, a a 25% pay increase or whatever. That's a pay cut. Over five years, that's a pay cut. And he is saying that they got the store, that they got the whole store.
2: But Joe, you can just, have surgery and not get fired anymore. <laughs> like, come on. Well, it's at certain medical procedures. Oh, right, maybe. Well, you know, terms and conditions may apply. Right.
6: <laughs> right, right. I mean, one other thing I would say about the raises thing is even if there's one way to think about it is like, okay, it's a pay cut. There's another way to think about it of like, is this a specifically great deal? If you look at just Bureau of Labor Statistics data right now, it's estimated that wages are rising at about 5.4%. That's the latest number I saw. So if you're getting with your your deal 5%, that's the whole economy wages are rising 5.4%. So this isn't even even relative to the other workers in the country. This is not a standout knockdown deal. You know, with John Deere last year, it was a big deal that they got immediate 10% raises. It was both a relative increase from there uh the deal they rejected first and got a second better deal it was also higher than most people were getting in an annual raise at that time union or not and it was also above the rest of the economy in terms of are you catching up with inflation as of you know last september or october this this does not on any metric spell like a magnificent raise increase the only the thing they keep saying is this is the highest rail workers have have gotten a raise since 40 years ago, which incidentally 40 years ago is when inflation was at this point. So it's not, there's no gains here uh, relative to anything else. Now it's workers decision if they think that's, you know, is that what they wanted or is it not what they wanted? I don't even have much of a take on that. I just think if you're looking at it economically, if you're looking at it, you know, in any analysis, there's nothing outstanding. This will not go down as a historic real deal. It'll go down mm-hmm. as a historic strike threat, lockout threat, but it won't go down as, you know, nobody's going to be talking about, man, the gains we got in 22, you know, this yeah. is not, not. it's it's not going to change anything. Uh, it's not going to be like historic in any way for these workers or for the industry. It's not going to take a cut. It's not going to hurt them that bad, you know? Mm-hmm. so So I just don't think, you know, obviously they got a program to push.
5: Right. Yeah. And and I and so I, I wanna get your what what are workers I wanna get what workers are telling you and then I, I wanna get to that about the lockout. About how the, the strike narrative is kind of complicated by, by the actual by the facts on the ground. I know that you've got a heart out at ten thirty, so I wanna make sure that we um that, that we're able to keep moving m- moving forward on that so what are workers telling you you know i know that you're getting you're, you and you and max and mel are, are really kind of at, at the forefront of you know workers are talking to you coming to you probably more than anybody else what are workers telling you about how they feel about this deal
6: so I'll just say it's very hard to, 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 to be honest about polling. You know, what does this mean? You have a vocal group that's going to say, I'm feeling strongly this way or the other. But about, you know, maybe 50 to 100 workers who've said something to me have maybe two of them have said, I know that I'm voting yes. A really common thing right now is I have no idea what's in the deal. Right. It doesn't really mean much to say there's some unpaid sick time in the deal. If you can never use it, if it doesn't apply to you, you know, like it's contracts are like a legislation, you know, they and and they're only as useful as they're enforceable. So if it says you can get some unpaid sick time, if that's your contract language, there will be some unpaid sick time. You get one day in the con- in five years of a contract, that's contractually fulfilled. If there's no way to enforce it, you know, if they can deny. One thing I hear from railroad workers all the time is that yeah, we have this paid time off. They deny it ninety five percent of the time you right. know, if you choose X, Y, or Z day. So, you know, I think the main thing people are feeling is we had a strike deadline. We got a deal. We haven't seen the deal. We don't know when we vote on the deal. We don't know when the next strike deadline is if we reject the deal. So, you know, the most thoughtful rail workers I'm talking to who aren't just in a angry, 100% burn it all down mood, which a lot are, is, uh, you know, they basically say like, Look, I can't I can't say vote no. I can't say vote yes. None of our leaders mm-hmm. have seen it. Literally, it, it appears from my reporting that national leadership of, of at least a few of these unions have not seen language on a piece wow. of paper with a signature on it. That's they've been asking their national unions. What's can we see it? You know, one of the big unions that was at the bargaining table it, it, with the White House or, you know, Secretary of Labor. They put out a release last night, maybe six or seven p.m. That said, if anyone tells you what's in the tentative agreement, they're lying. Mm. They haven't seen it. Now, maybe they're accepting their you know ten-person negotiation team, but it seems like, it went, I, I don't know what to say. Is is the language actually finalized? Did they have a strict deal in the room, or was it just enough to kick off the the strike deadline, the lockout deadline? Uh, right. Clearly, part of the deal was the cooling off period is going to extend, but what the actual language is is going to be. It's going to make make or break it. And the last thing I'll say is before the new deal on Thursday, when you know when we got up to the brink, what people's sentiment was. There was internal polling at one of the biggest unions said seventy eight percent wanted to vote no and risk it with Congress, basically go on strike or lockout if that's what it's going to take. So the question is seventy eight percent. Do you swing? whatever it is, like 39% of the <laughs> vote or whatever you need, how many points, do you swing that with unpaid sick time and a cap on healthcare premiums at 400 a month? Right. I don't see that happening. And I don't see it happening for 10 unions that have yet to ratify, right? So you have, there's a whole situation here with with how the vote works, but you actually have here 12 different union contracts. And if one of them is not ratified and hits the strike deadline, they can shut down the whole system with one small union. And that is exactly what happened in 1992, which is the last time there was a national shutdown. So when you talk about is the rail strike over, you're telling me that all of these 12 unions are going to ratify a deal that they were very far from, uh, you know, a day before, just cause they got these honestly, seemingly pretty small provisions. I don't buy that. They can pass a ratification in every one of these unions, just talking to members. And that doesn't mean there's a strike. That's a separate question. You can reject the deal and still be negotiating. But, you know, just looking at looking at the math, you're you're not talking about can they get majority of the railroad workers to support it? They're talking about all these different contracts, all these different issues, a lot of stuff that wasn't addressed and a lot of built up frustration and anger at the process uh, of how this went
2: down. hmm. Real quick, I wanted to just clarify, um, we don't know, the the current cooling off period, it obviously extended, but we don't know for how long, correct?
6: We have no idea. I mean, presumably that was part of the deal with Secretary of Labor, is they set a date and said, we're going to announce that. There's been multiple different people have told me from different unions what they think it's going to be, as soon as two weeks, as long as December, but there has been no official word of you know, no striker lockout until XYZ date. And that's a legal a legal you know, the reason that matters is because it's actually illegal under the Railway Labor Act you set a, a cooling off period and that's enforceable by the law. So it means any action before then would be illegal, which brings us, Jacob, to the uh to the lot the the proto lockout they did the yeah. week leading up to the cooling off period, which was was stunning. Yeah, uh, well let,
5: yeah, well explain that to us because there was like you said there was there were proto lockouts by the companies uh in in, in anticipation of, of of this deadline and and so what we were you know as the whole of the media even outside of the right wing you know the the echo chamber people like you know we we're, we're talking about bloomberg new york times all these people are talking about the danger that the workers represent but we were actually seeing bosses moving in a more serious way towards locking out the workers than we were seeing workers moving in a serious way towards striking. Explain that to us.
6: Well, something you have to understand is how the Railway Labor Act works is that you have this cooling off period. Once that's over, a strike or a lockout is no longer illegal under federal law, which means that you know, either side, the, the company or the workers, can initiate basically a rail shutdown. Now, why would the company want to do it? It's because historically under the Rail Labor Act and under the rail negotiations, Congress steps in when the rail shut down because it's too much of a national emergency to have the rails not working, that Congress will pass a law. They'll go through both houses of Congress and the president within like 72, 48, 24 hours and pass a law. So the, the law they're going to pass, most likely, is going to be based on the recommendations, the P, the presidential emergency board from August, which was the initial recommendations workers were voting on. So if Congress passes it, most likely thing they're going to do is say, you're going back to work under the recommendations that the president's board made in August, which the workers have already said we can't accept. And the carriers, the company, said we can accept. We're OK with that. So the gamble here from the carriers is basically They think if they can get to a lockout, they can shut down the rails for a short period, Congress will step in and impose the contract that they want, that the unions don't want. And they don't have to bother with these pesky ratification votes or negotiations. It's just over. So they were trying to get to this point. From the workers' perspective, their hope is we can do a strike and it will force the carriers to to respond to us, but Congress will stay out or will pass something that's more palatable. They won't just side with the employers. It's a really rare moment where the federal government is directly, basically negotiating a union contract. It, it doesn't happen anywhere else. I mean, except in the federal employees, right? So, so we, in the week leading up, when Friday is this deadline, before which it's illegal to do a striker lockout, You saw no worker activity in terms of walking off the job, wildcats. I hadn't heard any reports of slowdowns, anything like that. But what you did hear is that rail lines were shutting down operations. Now, they would say there might be a lockout, so we're stopping operations on Tuesday. You know, on Tuesday at noon, we're stopping all Norfolk Southern, a big rail line, shopped all automotive and all intermodal shipments. Uh, There were stories of the Biden administration trying to figure out how we're going to get chlorine hazardous materials that are essential to functioning, how to get chlorine to waste treatment plants just to keep things moving because the rails were shutting down days before the lockout. Their shutdowns meant that Amtrak had to cancel all these long distance routes. And I had people in the Great Plains in North Dakota saying they hadn't seen a train for days because Amtrak had basically had to shut down because the freight carriers were shutting down, maintenance shutting down. Uh, track operations, things like that. So why are they doing that illegally early? Again, they say it's for safety. They say it's for X, Y, Z. But what they want to do is to sort of threaten. This is what a lockout looks mm-hmm. like. Look, your economy is slowing down. Congress, you really want to stop car shipments across the whole country? Better step in. Better put pressure on the unions to take the deal that's on the table. So that was to me scandalous, and and uh, you know just another representation of how much power. These employers have and how we're relying on, you know, these scrappy working class people to stand up to the most powerful corporation in the country to say this system isn't working. We desperately need to change something. Uh, are we and-
5: expecting that, that these companies and, and the people responsible for those, de- for, for those decisions being made, are we expecting that they are going to be held accountable for breaking the law? I mean, if we saw this on the other end, if we saw unions going out there from the top, you know, not even—wildcat strikes are a little bit different, and, and they're maybe a little bit more difficult to uh, hold a union accountable for. But if you get from the top a, a union going on strike illegally— you could very well be looking at at, at bankrupting a union, um, mm-hmm. all of the fines that would be incurred. Are we are we expecting anything like that to come to these companies?
6: Sure, fines, and I don't know the specifics of the Railway Labor Act, but also things like you lose the right to bargain. Like you could just basically your union no longer exists. These there are legal penalties in different jurisdictions. Again, Railway Labor Act. Someone a lawyer could tell you, but serious, serious, serious uh, implications. And I haven't seen anything filed, anything, you know, I don't know what Pete Buttigieg is doing with the Department (laughs) of Transportation, but you just had, you know, some CEOs and executives shut down. Maybe it was 5%, maybe it was 10%, maybe 15% of the rail system in this country, specifically for a political game to, to, to say, we don't want to do the sick days, so we're going to give you a taste of what this is going to look like. Under a legal period where it's stated by presidential action, there can be no... Uh, lockout or stoppage or anything like that. Now, you know, it's just a microcosm of how much power we give corporations to just decide what happens, right? The workers have no say in the operations. And they just basically just say, here's what's happening at work today. No car shipments. You can sit in the garage. We're not locking you out technically because you're coming in, we'll still pay you. That's nothing for us, but we're locking out basically the the US economy.
5: Insane, insane. And so we're not, we're not, uh, you you, you wouldn't even know who, what the potential penalties would be are uh, for these companies, even if someone were to be interested in in, uh, in holding them accountable.
6: Sure, and I can't imagine, you know, their corporate legal team, I'm sure, is, is half ex-government officials anyway who work for the service transportation people. So, you know, That's, I don't know. I, I, I would love to see someone bring at least some sort of, you know, put a bill in Congress to, to prosecute this, but, yeah. but it's well, and, and
5: so that... Th- That transitions to the last thing, and and this is kind of going to be a different topic from the rail stuff, but I wanted to get to this before I let you go, um, which is that Republicans have in their crosshairs – You know, we could call it law enforcement—that the only law enforcement in the country that is responsible for holding bosses accountable, which is the National Labor Relations Board and the Department of Labor. You know, calling them law enforcement is is not common, but that is their—that is—that's what they are set out to do: is enforce the law, right? And, And and Republicans have those have those agencies in their crosshairs. Adam, if you could pull up this graphic from Politico, it shows that, this article from Politico shows that House Republicans have sent more letters to uh, President Joe Biden about the Labor Department and the National Labor Relations Board than the rest of the letters that they sent combined. Now, Jonah, I know that you don't have any specifics about each of these letters, but talk to us about What this means, all of this attention on the two two bodies in the government that are most responsible for protecting workers' rights and holding bosses accountable when they break the law. What is the ramifications of all of this attention negatively from the Republicans on these two agencies? Well,
6: you know, a lot of this is it's sort of a question of what can they get done if they control the house and and the oversight committees and can just hold hearings and drag people in front of, you know, committees and say you're too pro union or you're colluding with Starbucks. You can look at some of the letters that they've sent and they're they're very specifically targeting high-profile union fights and basically saying the government is is wrongly too pro union. Now, what what that actually like what that power actually is in terms of administrative capacity? You know, technically, Joe Biden will still be running the NLRB and the Department of Labor, but a lot of this is you know it's politics, narrative, it's public opinion about unions, it's uh, how how much are they gonna blast these people with false allegations of collusion? Uh, You know, the Starbucks thing is the most interesting to me because it's just sort of a, a microcosm of this whole thing. You have, you know, this incredibly inspiring Starbucks organizing drive that a lot of people would say is at the heart of whatever feels like this new labor moment. And you have the company saying, basically filing, saying we should stop all elections. They're illegitimate. They're colluding. It's very like stop the steal type stuff. And then in Congress, you have people giving them, giving Starbucks the leg up saying, you know, maybe we should investigate. Maybe there is some collusion. Could we get the inspector general to go into the NLRB and find Mm -hmm. some lowly board agent who sent a text message to a Starbucks worker they went to college with and, you know, or whatever it is Mm -hmm. like there's, there's, you can dig and dig and dig, you know, dearly departed Ken Starr would have a great, uh, a great time with this stuff is if you can get, if you have people who are politically motivated and can put on oversight hearings and put Marty Walsh in front of a, group of hostile people, or better yet, put a Starbucks worker in front of, you know, 15 spittle covered uh, screaming senators or Congress people. Yeah, that's gonna change how people feel about unions and about how, I mean, I think the big thing is not just people saying, I don't like unions anymore, but I think the big thing is people saying, oh, wow, this is what happens if you stick your neck out. I don't wanna be dragged in front of Congress. I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna deal with the, someone, a, a, a subpoena saying I have to testify about, you know, when did I last speak to a National Labor Relations Board employee? You know, so I think what we can expect if the House does go Republican is a circus about how overly pro-union the uh, the administration is and, and the Democrats are. And that's what Ben Shapiro and the local the pundit you put on. That's what they're setting the stage for. They basically want to say, look, this is totally out of line. This is this is a crisis we have to intervene. You know the economy is under attack. Uh, you know if you look at any of the fundamentals, unionism is still down. Wages are still down. All the conditions are still down. Membership is still down. Union's political influence is down. Everything is down from you know almost at a historic low. Um, but of course, the, they have to sort of make a show, and they'll use they'll use the leverage of Congress if they can, uh, which is what this House oversight. Targeting of the NLRB is all about. They're building a case, a paper trail, something they can say. You know, I'm sure the next thing they'll say is, "Look, we filed 24 letters to the Department of Labor. You got 24 letters open against you. Must be something fishy going on." Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're building building a a fake consensus that um, there's something wrong happening uh, in the Labor Department.
5: Uh, last thing before we let you go, we got a question in the chat from Jared, uh, was discussing the railroad situation and how their process differs from the National Labor Relations Act. This prompted somebody to say that the NLRB is too passive and should be replaced wholesale. I ignored it, but how could I have responded? Jonah, do you have any thoughts on that?
6: You know, uh, the the head of the NLRB, the general counsel right now is sort of the most aggressive we've seen in a long time, but it's still a slow administrative agency. There was, you know, this joint employer rule was just uh, proposed last last week. And, you know, it's an important rule. It basically says that McDonald's is responsible for every one of its franchisors' terrible behavior instead of saying, oh, it's not me. It's this local, you know, middle manager who's, who's in charge of the wage theft. But, you know, rules like that they go through the administrative bureaucracy for literally years. They right. get stopped at every point. And by the time they, this happened to Obama too, by the time they come close to getting into force, there's some political flip in the house and the Senate or the presidency, and they get nullified. So, you know, I think it's hard to make a judgment on, is the NLRB doing enough or doing its job? It's, it's a really slow and bad avenue for change. Um, I think, you know, we've seen good action from, the top of the NLRB, but to we're going to need something that moves faster than the federal government administrative agencies if we're going to see an actual flip uh, in a lot of this stuff. Uh, I certainly wouldn't replace it with the um, Rail Labor Board. That's all. That's my only uh, recommendation.
5: Jonah Furman, staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes. Thank you very much. It's been very informative. We appreciate it. Uh, Make sure that you're following him on Twitter at Jonah Furman. You can read his newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, at WhoGetsTheBird.substack.com. Also, if you want to learn more about the railroad situation, make sure you're following Maximilian Alvarez and Mel Buer at The Real News. In addition to Jonah Furman at Labor Notes. Jonah, thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Thanks, guys. guys. Thank you so much.
5: And with that, we're going to head to a break. On the other side, we are going to be talking to a nurse in Tuscaloosa about the situation with the VA. Make sure you don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report.
0: Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state Reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org.
1: There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW 558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW 558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW 558.org.
5: North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or Alabama at gmail for more information.
4: Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial, working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern worker movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at hometownaction.org to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Dot .org Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees AFL-CIO
5: Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale and
4: Department Store Union Learn more at rwdsu.info
0: All
5: righty, folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And on the line, we've got Jennifer Giles, a nurse practitioner. She works with veterans down in Tuscaloosa, and she is a member of the National Nurses Union. She's going to be talking to us about uh, some issues at the VA down in Tuscaloosa. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so talk, talk to, to us about what the nurses do at the Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa VA. VA, you know, I, you, uh, the National Nurses Union, uh, they represent nurses down at the Tuscaloosa VA and VAs across the country. What are some of the jobs that y'all, uh, that, that those nurses do for veterans down there?
3: So we have um, several different areas. We have uh, mental health, where we, we take, take care of patients, patients with um, acute, acute medical, complex medical, and psychiatric issues. We also have uh, geriatrics and ex- extended, care extended care where we, we take care, care of uh, nursing home types of, of veterans, of as well as, as outpatient uh, primary care. care. We also have outpatient mental health. health. So, so we, we run clinics and, and we also do um, uh, outpatient care, where veterans come in, see the doctor, and they go home. And additionally, we have nurses who actually do home-based, and they go out to see veterans in the home. Oh, I didn't realize that the VA had services like that. Yes, we have home health. We also have telehealth. So they can see patients um, through... Electronic means they can see uh, veterans mm-hmm. who are, are not able to come in. They actually have um, telehealth medicine as well. well
5: that, that's great. I know that that has uh, that that was something that my doctor uh, stopped doing at you know as the pandemic, kind of the public awareness of it or, or the public interest in it kind of wore thin, his, his interest in doing the telehealth kind of, kind of wore thin. Uh, so that's great that y'all are still offering that service for veterans.
3: Yes, it proved to be a very valuable tool um, after COVID was upon us. Um, it gave us a way to still see veterans um, even through that crisis.
5: Right, right. And how long has the NNU been representing nurses down there?
3: For many years, I'm not able to tell you exactly how many, but I've been there for 11 years, and NNU has been there since I've been there.
5: Okay, wow, that's that, that's a pretty good bit of time. Um, so, you know, the the reason that we wanted to talk to you today, and is because of some of the issues that that nurses and and other uh, VA employees have been having at the VA, and, and you know I'm a member of AFGE, and, and both the NNU and AFGE have been having some issues with the VA for a long time now. And both of the unions have actually staged uh, protests across the country and at that Tuscaloosa facility here in Alabama. Uh, what are some of the issues that uh, that NNU members and that AFGE members are facing down there?
3: Uh, Patient safety concerns, our our primary concern is um, making sure that we have adequate staff to uh, appropriately see the patients and attend to all of their needs. We've uh, lost a lot of staff. COVID has had an effect on um, uh, many industries and um, the same for nursing, as well as um, conditions that hospital, that administration has Uh, contributed to nurses uh, leaving the bedside. So the concerns that we're having are to uh, encourage them to um, increase the the flexibility of staffing, increase um, options so that nurses will want to stay. Um, and, and new, new nurses, nurses will want to come. Re- retention and retention recruitment and, uh, are uh, primary issues because uh, without, without the nurses, that leaves uh, fewer nurses to take, to take care of the veterans. When, when there, there are fewer nurses, nurses that increases your, increases your workload your tremendously. tremendously. Um, and and you you know, know it, it leads, to leads to moral distress, distress and eventually and moral injury. injury. So mm. we, we are, are providing, providing options and requesting the needs, the needs that the nurses say that they want And we're asking the administration and management to respond to those requests.
5: And how has the, um, you know, how's the community and and the patients down there responded to some of these issues? Because, you know, the the veterans are really, really, um, they're really protective of the VA, you know, even even amid all of these attacks on the VA by, uh, you know, by corporate politicians. VA, uh, veterans still prefer going to VA hospitals, um, and veterans still get better outcomes at VA hospitals, even amid all these attacks on, on the VA and, and attacks on, on that as, as a viable career prospect for, for people um, coming out of the military. You know, another thing about the VA is that it's one of the largest employers of veterans in this country. Um, so how, how, are, how are veterans and how is the community in Tuscaloosa reacting to some of these issues that y'all are having?
3: Well, well, you're exactly right. right. They, uh, they, they do, do brag right. on the VA, and, and they, they do love, love coming to the and VA, and that's because of the hard work that, that we're putting in. in. And, and the, the reason, reason that we're protesting is because we want to continue, to continue that high level of care that, that we provide. We Veterans come, come to the Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa VA from all over the country. country. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we are, are doing our very best, and what we're saying is that we need help. We need, um, we need um, more, nurses more nurses in, in here for, for us to, to continue, continue to provide the level of care that, care that we provide. We don't, don't want nurses to have to do the the, the roles of two, of two or three people, people. That, that makes uh, your job your status. Job status your job satisfaction or your ability to satisfy your your patients, patients, that decreases decreases your ability to satisfy your patients. patients. You can't attend to to all of their needs the way way that we have been accustomed to doing and the way that we strive to do. You can't do that if you're spread spread so thinly, if you're having having to run two or three clinics, clinics, whereas you should be running one. Those types of things lead to less availability to the veterans, and that's less that we can do for them. We're fighting for the veterans.
5: Yeah, of, uh, of course, course, of course, course. and and you know, you know, you're talking about you know, it's important that the VA hire more nurses. Um, it why are they why are they not? What is the, is are, do they have? Is it is it an issue of nurses just don't want to work at the VA because it's such a difficult job and the pay is so low, or do they not even have the job postings out there?
3: I think think it's it's a combination combination of things. Um, I think think it it is a combination of of, of postings not being done done timely enough, Um, Um, as as well as um, when when a nurse is uh, searching for an employer, employer, of course, course they're they're going going to weigh the benefits as as well as salary. salary. Mm -hmm. So if you you are weighing your options, options, most likely likely you wouldn't wouldn't go go to the lowest paying employer. employer. Uh, Uh, You're you're gonna gonna look look for for the best best benefit benefit package. package. So um, we're We're asking for for the VA VA to to Consider those those things and and make sure that we are competitive. competitive. You have have to be competitive with your uh, other facilities and other employers if you want want to gain gain and attract. And And we also, also, we want want to attract the best. Hmm. So we have to have have packages that that are available available and working conditions that are conducive to retaining those trained skilled nurses that we we already have. And we also also want want to attract the best to come in to work with us. Of course.
5: And and you, you would think, think that, that that's something that, uh, you know, that, that veteran, veteran-loving politicians could agree on, you know, uh, on a bipartisan basis. You would think that this would be, uh, you know, wham-bam, really quick type of thing.
3: You would think so. Um, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, it seems that maybe budgets get put ahead of um, nursing, so um, that is something that they will have to reconsider because nursing is crucial to taking care of veterans, and we need enough of them on staff to provide the excellent level of care and the skilled nursing that um, only the VA can provide.
5: Mm-hmm. And and these these aren't obviously these aren't issues that are just affecting. Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa nurses. nurses. This, this is, is a nationwide, nationwide problem at VA facilities. facilities. Is that, that right? That is correct. Um, why, why is it then, does, does management at the local level have the budget or is it that there's, there's not the budget from, uh, you know, from the national level?
3: Management would have to explain the budget. I cannot mm-hmm. explain that. However, However I, I do know, know that, that under certain, certain conditions as such as, as uh, hard, hard to feel uh, positions, positions where you have positions, have positions that have been vacant for extended periods of time, or, or if you, you have positions where you need, need uh, several people Um, in a timely timely fashion, fashion you don't have them. them. When you're in a crisis, there are means of meeting those needs. needs. So So we're we're asking for our administration and our our vision director, Dr. Walker, to to make make sure that every recruitment recruitment and incentive available is is being utilized in order to attract nurses to come and And also to retain retain the ones ones that that we have. have. So So budget may be a factor, but there are ways around that. There are incentives that the VHA handbook describes.
5: Absolutely. So uh, is there anything that folks that are listening to this now can do to help y'all push management and the management at the VA and the administration to do the right thing about this?
3: Absolutely. They They can uh, visit visit our our website, website, nationalnursesunited.org slash Veterans Affairs. They can visit that website. There's also a, uh, you can write Congress and ask them to support the VA Employee Fairness Act, which gives us um, bargaining rights as well as support us when we, we petition. petition. When we, we are protesting, protesting outside, outside, you're your always, always welcome to, welcome to come to and join us and, and um, advocate, advocate for the veterans alongside with us.
5: With us. Do you all have, have another protest, protest at the, the Tuscaloosa VA coming up soon?
3: We don't, don't want to have, have one scheduled as of, as of yet. yet.
5: Well, let we'll us know, and uh, we'll we'll try our best to be there at that time.
3: Thank you so much. We appreciate it.
5: Jennifer, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that folks know?
3: Um, just continue to support us at the VA. We love what we do. We have hardworking dedicated nurses, and we just we want our program to grow. We want our VA to grow. We want to be able to provide for more veterans. We uh, some of our units have been closed because we don't have enough nursing staff. We want those units back open. So, continue to encourage our administrators and leaders and Congress to help us so that we can get back, uh, back on top where we used to be.
5: Jennifer Giles, uh, nurse practitioner, uh, practitioner, member of National, National Nurses, United. Nurses United. Thank you for you your time. I
3: appreciate Thank it. Thank you. you. Good, Good night.
2: night.
5: It's all wealth, all wealth should go to labor, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. You just heard our conversation with Jennifer Giles, a nurse practitioner in Tuscaloosa, talking about the issues that nurses are having at the Veterans Affairs Hospitals in Alabama. We appreciate her taking the time earlier this week to talk to us about that. Adam, you had written last week a letter to uh, President Joe Biden and Secretary Marty Walsh, Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, and uh, we were going to ha- uh, read that a- a- as sort of an open letter. Um, so, so Adam, I'll, I'm going to ha- hand it over to you.
2: Sure thing. Uh, yeah, I wrote this, uh, well, uh, I think it's been about two weeks now. I'm not holding my breath for a response uh, from either of those gentlemen, but to Mr. President Biden and Mr. Secretary Walsh, I want to say that I'm an active labor union member who has served in various positions within multiple unions. I'm an active voter. I've served as a volunteer and even as a candidate. And I wrote to express my disappointment over the administration's inadequate response to labor. I was led to believe that this would be the, quote, most pro-union administration of our lifetime. And yet opportunity after opportunity to support organized labor has been neglected. Or worse, over 1,000 of my fellow Alabamians have been on strike since April 1st, 2021 against the shocking corporate greed of Warrior Met Cole. These UMWA sisters and brothers have been holding the line, fighting only for what is fair after sacrificing to save the company. While the Alabama government has used state troopers and court injunctions to try to break the strike, this Democratic administration has been completely silent. The administration has yet to even make a statement or a visit, much less attempt to bolster negotiations and persuade Warrior Matt Cole to sign a fair agreement. There's been a rampant crime wave among corporations such as Amazon and Starbucks flagrantly violating labor law. While worker organizers are being terminated, threatened, deceived, and retaliated against in numerous other ways, the administration has remained on the sideline. While the NLRB at long last appears willing to fulfill its congressional mission to support labor organizing and General Counsel Abruzzo has been a breath of fresh air, such blatant violations of the spirit and the letter of our nation's laws should not be left to an understaffed, underfunded NLRB alone to address. The most recent and perhaps most disappointing action was through the president's recommendations regarding the freight rail labor dispute. While recommending raises higher than the company offer, but lower than the union request, virtually none of the critical concerns of the workers were addressed in these recommendations. The freight rail companies are putting these workers and by extension our entire economy at risk with their egregious practices. These workers deserve safe working conditions and reasonable time off in addition to much-needed pay raises. This labor dispute was and is an opportunity for the White House to live up to its lofty words and come down on the side of the workers. Unfortunately, these recommendations are far from that and ignored the cries of our fellow workers in such an important industry. I call on the Secretary of Labor and the President to actually support these freight rail workers, to actually address the rampant union busting, in labor law violations by companies like Starbucks, and to finally intervene on the side of the miners in Brookwood, Alabama. The administration can do this. Will you?
5: And uh, speaking of people not supporting the Alabama miners who have said that they support them, who have made overtures about supporting uh, supporting these coal miners? Uh, Tim James showed up a couple of weeks ago.
2: Oh, I didn't know he was he was back on the scene. Thought yeah, thought he kind of scuttled away.
5: Tim James, I had thought he had kind of scuttled away as well because uh, ever since he came in an embarrassing third place next to no-name Lindy Blanchard. I mean, Tim James is the son of an Alabama governor uh, and Lindy Blanchard is some no-name Trump donor who got appointed to be ambassador of to Slovenia, right? So this is somebody who just bought a position in the administration and he came behind her in the primary, in the Republican primary for governor. So very, very embarrassing, embarrassing finish for Tim James, son of fob James. Um, and and so I had just kind of assumed that he was going to slink away into his uh, private toll road construction company firm, not to really be involved with politics anymore, um, and and he was just going to try to lobby you know politicians to build toll roads so that he can take more money from uh, you know Alabama citizens citizens stuff like that, but. About a month ago, a few weeks ago, and I, I I've been sitting on this for if, if we had three or four minutes, and and it looks like we did today. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Joey Clark, who is a a talk some talk radio host, I don't know, I've never listened to his program, but he wrote an op ed in uh, Coke funded crypto bro uh, flat earth military coup boosting <laughs> eighteen nineteen news saying that he also rubbed elbows at this big Alabama GOP fundraiser with Tim James. Tim James oh. showed up. And so we had been ever since his his embarrassing loss, we had been reaching out to him, you know, very nicely. I I think, you know, I I can show you the emails that we sent him if you want. We had been reaching out to Tim James very nicely, asking if, you know, now that he's got all this free time since he's not going to be governor, if he was going to be able to use the political capital that he has to support the coal miners that he made very, very strong commitments to on our radio program when he came as a guest, Um, and he just totally ignored us. I called what I thought was his cell phone number, ignored me. I called his son ignored me i called his business ignored me uh i emailed him i emailed his business i emailed the campaign i emailed people that i was familiar with from the campaign everybody totally ignored me and so i just assumed this guy's not going to be involved in politics anymore he doesn't care about alabama citizens doesn't care but even though he didn't have the time to reply to me which you know i'm not the important thing right even though he, did, he does not have the time to spend any amount of time now that he's already gotten the coal miners' endorsement, he got their endorsement, he got what he wanted from them, and he was done playing with them. But he does have the time to rub elbows with big wigs in the Republican Party in Montgomery. But he doesn't have time for Alabama coal miners. So that's just a that's that's just a reminder about who Tim James is and who all of these people are. All of these politicians, frankly, on either side of the aisle, most of these people, what their concerns their concerns are just with self aggrandizement. Their concerns are just with pumping themselves up. There's no no interest in actually helping coal miners in Alabama and actually helping working people in our state. Because not only has Tim James not replied to me, he's not, he's not done anything. He's not reached out to the union. He's not been on a picket line. He's not used his capital to lobby K.I.V. to stop using our taxpayer dollars to give emergency escorts to out-of-state scabs. He's not done anything, but he does have time to rub elbows with fancy Harvard Boys in Montgomery. So that's something to remember about who Tim James is. Uh, but a better way uh, but to end the show we've we've got some 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 more heartwarming news. Last week Alabama miners had a big guest come by to show them some support. Tom Morello, guitarist for Rage Against the Machine, came and played for them at their bi-weekly rally. He even got there early and helped the women's auxiliary prepare food for the event, stock up the strike pantry. Uh, Adam and I were very unfortunately unable to make it, got very serious FOMO, but we were able to secure some footage from this guy. His name's Adam on Twitter. He's got a fairly large TikTok, actually. You can follow him at Incrediberry, Incrediberry. Uh, So he was kind enough to send us this video he took, of tom morello singing at the uh uh, at the rally and it's 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 very very cool very heartwarming uh he's singing this land is your land with a bunch of union folks some of their children some of their wives um and you've got carl white uh one of the presidents of the local unions up there stomping his feet that's Um, awesome
2: yeah it was tom morello singing some woody guthrie surrounded by all of our union sisters and brothers. You got to love it.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it was really, really cool. It's a really cool video. I really hated that I was not able to be there, but, um, you know, uh, folks that's, uh, folks that talked to me about the event said that he was, uh, he was very much like, you know, down to the earth guy. And like I said, you know, he got there early and helped the women in the strike pantry, prepare the food for the event and everything like that. So, um, very very cool guy Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine came down and played for some Alabama Miners and so we are going to check go out.
2: out. Um, I was going to say check out Kim Kelly's article in Rolling Stone about it. Oh yeah, it.
5: do that and we're going to roll out on this uh, clip from Tom Morello down in Brookwood. <laughs>